Good morning, everybody, on this snowy Sunday. Uh, before we open the word together, let's pray together. Jesus, you are exalted. The King is, is exalted on high. And you are exalted, Lord Jesus, because you were crucified and resurrected according to the Father's good plan. Lord, you currently are ascended, sitting at the right hand of the Father in a place of kingship, rulership. Lord, you reign. And Lord, in our world right now, as we are encountering so much turbulence, we take great comfort and we take peace in this fact that you are king. You are sovereign. You are ruling. Lord God, despite appearances, we know that this is indeed true. And so we thank you this morning. And as we open your word together today, Lord, I pray that your exaltedness, your kingship, uh, your high and mighty glory uh, would shine through. And Father, help us today just to rejoice in Jesus, in the fact, Jesus, that you have come and that you are coming again. We pray these things in the mighty, powerful name of our Savior and Lord. Amen. Well, in your day-to-day, as you're talking to people, have you ever used a phrase like, he gave me the cold shoulder? Or a phrase like this, she was willing to turn a blind eye to the matter. Well, of course, most of us have used phrases such as those, turn a blind eye, uh, give the cold shoulder, etc. We have a basic idea of what we mean when we say those sorts of things, but most of us, I think, are probably unaware of the origins of those kinds of sayings. Or Take another one here. If I say this, I'm going to go ahead and bite the bullet and buy an $800 dishwasher, what I mean there is, of course, I'm going to endure the unpleasant task of laying out $800 for a new appliance. But again, the deeper question is, where does that phrase come from exactly? That phrase, bite the bullet. Here's the answer. On 19th century battlefields, prior to the invention of anesthetics, patients undergoing surgery there on the battlefield were given either a bullet or a piece of leather to bite down on to help them endure the pain of the surgery without anesthetic. So bite the bullet became a saying that you used if you were describing an unpleasant situation that you had to endure. What's the point here? The point is that often you and I use phrases that we haven't thought much about. What does that phrase that I just used actually mean? What is its origin? Friends, I think this phenomenon is also found in the church. There are biblical phrases that get used very commonly in the church whose origin, whose true meaning, we might not fully grasp. And I think one of those phrases is the phrase, Son of God. What does Son of God actually mean? 
Most of us are very happy to say that Jesus is the Son of God, but what does that phrase actually mean? What is the origin of that phrase? What do we actually mean when we say that, that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, this morning, the plan is to track this down together to the glory of God. The first thing to recognize is that Jesus was not the only individual to be called Son of God. So let's go back to the beginning of the biblical story. What we find is that Adam is Son of God. In Luke chapter 3, Luke gives us his genealogy, and Luke's genealogy works backwards from Jesus all the way back to Adam. And Adam is called Son of God in Luke 3, verse 38. So as far as human life on earth is concerned, Adam was the initial Son of God. And to Adam, Son of God, God had assigned a representative role, a representative role. Adam, as Son of God, represented all humanity. What Adam did would affect humanity, either for better or worse. Adam, we know, failed. And so, God later bestowed the title Son of God upon the embryonic nation, just as they were beginning, the embryonic nation of Israel. In Exodus 4, verse 22, God calls the nation of Israel my firstborn son, my firstborn son. So now instead of the individual, Adam, it's the corporate body of people called Israel who are God's son. So just notice in the early books of Scripture that we go from the individual, Adam, who is God's son, to the corporate body of people. We go from an individual to a corporate body of people, Israel, who are God's son. Now, Israel, as son of God, would be the beneficiaries of God's power during the Exodus. God would take his son, Israel, out of Egyptian bondage by his mighty hand, and later on in Scripture, in Hosea 11.1, 1, God would recall, he would affirm that great redemptive exodus event when God says there, out of Egypt, I called my son. So there's a reference back to the exodus, God calling his firstborn son, Israel, out of their bondage in Egypt. Now in both the son of God, Adam's case, and in the Son of God, Israel's case, God had entered into a covenant. Both Adam and Israel broke the covenant. Adam's breaking of the covenant is well documented, of course, in Genesis chapter 3. And in Israel's case, their wayward sonship is described in a place like Isaiah 1-2, 
where God laments, listen for the sonship language here, God laments, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. He's talking about his firstborn son, Israel, rebelling against him. And then in Jeremiah 3.22, God calls Israel there his faithless sons, and God pleads with them to return to him. Israel proved to be a wayward son. Well, in the midst of that history, in the midst of Israel's history, God raised up a new son of God. In this case, what God did is he narrowed the focus once again back down to an individual like it had been with Adam. The individual this time was David. And not only David, but David's future offspring as well. Now there would be a succession of kings, a succession of sons of God who would come in the lineage of David. As God went ahead and forged his covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, he said concerning David and concerning David's offspring, he said in 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be to him a father and he, king of Israel in the south, he shall be to me a son. King David and his royal offspring were the new sons of God. And like Adam before them, David and his offspring were to be representatives of God's people. Kings in the line of David were God-ordained representatives of God's people. As Peter Latehart summarizes this, he says, the fortunes of Israel would henceforth turn on the iniquity or righteousness of the Son. Yes, as it went for the kings, so it went for Israel. The Son of God, David, and his offspring were representatives of the people. Now, there is a crucially important psalm that is clearly connected with the coronation ceremony or the ceremony of crowning the kings in the line of David. What psalm am I talking about? I'm talking, of course, about Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, the new king in the line of David ascends the throne he is installed on the throne, and in that regal moment of great splendor and great pomp and majesty, Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, declares to the king in verse 7, he says to the king, the newly installed king, you are what? My son. Today I have begotten you. So there's a new son of God on the throne decreed by Yahweh himself, and Yahweh says, today I have begotten you, which does not mean 
Today I have physically birthed you. It doesn't mean that. Rather, begotten in this context means today I am installing you. I am establishing you in this official relationship now where you are the human king of my people, my son who will represent my people, and I am the Lord your father who is investing this authority in you, my son. Now, David, although David had so many fantastic successes, didn't he? Successes as God's son, he also failed very miserably in a moral sense. And David's son Solomon, and Solomon's son Rehoboam, and, and all the kings of Judah afterward, all these sons of God, they were imperfect sinners. None of these sons of God kept covenant perfectly with their father God. And their royal subjects underneath them followed suit. Israel followed suit to the point that Israel ended up wrenched out of their land, exiled in Assyria first and then in Babylon. The line of kings in David's line seemingly cut out terminated for 400 years. As the people returned from their long night of exile, they were asking themselves, as they come back to the land, they're asking themselves, where is the next son of God? Would there be another son of God? Would one come who was better than Adam? One who would represent God's people in holiness. One who would represent God's people in obedience to the Father. Would there be a better son of God than David and David's offspring? One who would appear on earth as the royal son from the tribe of Judah and rule at last with benevolence and with righteousness and with justice and godliness. Where was the next son of God? 400 long years passed by. 400, that's a lot of years. Now I want you to come with me in your mind's eye, just imagine the scene, come with me in your mind's eye to a place called Pisidian Antioch, dateline, mid-first century AD, around 48 AD. The Apostle Paul is there in Pisidian Antioch and he's preaching in a very diverse synagogue. In this synagogue audience, there are Jewish folks listening to Paul as he preaches, but there are also Gentile converts to Judaism who are listening. And then there's another group of people listening called God-fearers. That is, people who showed interest in Judaism, but who had not yet converted 
And Pisidian Antioch was also a very ethnically diverse sort of town, much like our city of Montreal is. So we're in Acts 13 now. And Paul's sermon in this synagogue setting, it actually begins in verse 16 of Acts 13. And what Paul does is he takes his listeners through a brief history of Israel from the time of the Exodus through the time of the judges and the kings right up to Jesus and his crucifixion and his resurrection. For our purposes this morning, we're only focused on two verses in this sermon of Paul's, verses 32 and 33. And here, climactically, Paul says this. We bring you the euangelizo in Greek, the good news, the glad tidings. That's what Christmas is all about. That what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children. Now let's stop there just for a moment. Notice carefully in the, this part of the passage that the very clear idea of promise and fulfillment. Paul declares that what God had promised this had now, in his time, in the first century, this had now been fulfilled. When Paul talks about the promise side of the promise fulfillment equation, he uses this phrase, what God promised to the fathers. What's he referring to there? He's referring to the Old Testament. What God had promised to the fathers is all found in the Old Testament scriptures. And now he says there in first century Pisidian Antioch, all of that promise from God had been fulfilled. And what I want you to notice very carefully here is who has it been fulfilled to? It is fulfilled, he says, to us, their children. Now again, I remind you, Paul here is speaking to a diversity of people, right? He's speaking to a diversity of people, not just Orthodox Jewish people, but also Gentiles. And he says, to us, and he's looking around at this diverse audience, to us, God's promises have been fulfilled. Us, including the Gentiles, who are listening to him. Well, how exactly, how exactly had God fulfilled his Old Testament promises to Jews and Gentiles there in the first century? Listen to what Paul says. He continues in his sermon. God fulfilled his, his promises, how? By raising Jesus. Now, there is some debate here amongst biblical scholars as to how we should take this word raising in this particular context. The question is, is Paul talking about raising Jesus in terms of the bodily resurrection of Jesus? Or is Paul talking about raising Jesus like raising him onto the historical scene? like when God uh, is said to raise up a prophet for a particular era or time in history. 
My contention, to make a long story short, my contention, along with several trusted biblical scholars, is that it's the former. Paul is talking here about the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and I argue that way with verses 30 and 31 in mind, which we didn't look at, but there they are, 30 and 31. There, Paul has just been talking about Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead. So I think he's simply continuing the thought here in verse 33. He's still talking about physical bodily resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But coming back to the broader point, Paul says in these verses that God fulfilled what he had promised to the fathers. God fulfilled Old Testament revelation by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so we ask here, we are wise to ask of the text, what parts of the Old Testament were fulfilled when Jesus rose from the dead? What, how, how does the resurrection of Jesus exist in organic unity with the Old Testament scriptures? How is the resurrection of Jesus fulfillment of those scriptures? Well, in the Old Testament, we think of Ezekiel 37. Dead bones rising to life. A new age for Israel coming in a resurrection. A restoration and a return for exiled Israel. Or we think of Isaiah 25 and 26. When God promises there in the Old Testament, he promises that in the new age, he's going to do what? Swallow up death forever. Isaiah 25 verse 8. And he promises also in those chapters that your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. Isaiah 26 verse 19. Or we think of Daniel 12 verse 2 when God promised that at the end, at the time of the end, he said, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Paul stands there in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch and he declares to Jews and Gentiles that God's new age had arrived in Jesus Christ. That the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was what? It was God's blazing signal to the world that the age of final salvation had come. The long-awaited age of restoration had arrived. It had arrived in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The realization of the hope of Israel had come at last in Jesus Christ. But now here's where things get even thicker and richer. If you've ever been to the supermarket and picked up a can of Hunt's Thick and Rich... I often think there should be a Bible on that can because the Bible is so thick and rich. But it, things get even thicker. Forget that illustration. <laughs> things get even more profound and deep here. So let's see what Paul says as his sermon continues. What he does next 
is he connects the resurrection of Jesus with Psalm 2, verse 7. Remember Psalm 2, verse 7 that we talked about a little earlier? Part of that coronation psalm where the new Davidic king, the new son of God, was crowned, where God said to the incoming king, he said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul preaches here, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now what's going on here? Listen very carefully. At the start of Jesus' earthly ministry, he's baptized. And in the moment of his baptism, the voice from heaven thunders, and it sounds an awful lot like the voice in Psalm 2-7. The voice of God declares right there at Jesus' baptism, Mark 1-11, you are my beloved son. So there is a definite sense in which the baptism of Jesus Christ was a kind of coronation ceremony. The language of Psalm 2 gets used at his baptism. The father identifies Jesus as the new son of God who comes in the line of David to be the new Adam, to be the new Israel, to be the new David. Immediately after his baptism, what happens? Well, Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. We've already pointed out this morning that Israel was God's son, Exodus 4.22, Hosea 11.1. 1. Israel, son of God, was in the wilderness 40 years, and Israel failed as they were tempted. Jesus, son of God, is in the wilderness 40 days, and in the first two of his temptations, Satan wonders out loud if Jesus is who? the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. What does Jesus do? He proves his perfect sonship. Jesus acts like the son that Israel never was. Jesus overcomes temptation in the wilderness. And unlike Adam, son of God, and unlike David, son of God, Jesus, son of God, overcomes Satan's temptations by obeying the word of God. Adam failed in his temptation in the garden. David failed in his temptation with Bathsheba. Jesus, Son of God, overcomes the temptations of Satan by obeying the word of God. Jesus, you see, is the true Son 
of God. Later on, at his transfiguration, again the voice from heaven thunders, This is my beloved Son. More affirmation, confirmation that with Jesus, who are we dealing with? We're dealing with the Son in the line of David, who is better than David. Jesus is also greater than Moses and Elijah, who stand there with Jesus at the transfiguration. Jesus is God's beloved Son. We said earlier that Adam, Son of God, Adam had been appointed as a representative of humanity. And to quote Romans 5.15, here's what happened with Adam. Many died through that one man's trespass. Jesus, Son of God, dies on the cross at Calvary there as a representative for sinners, as a substitute in the place of sinners, and by him, the grace of God abounds for many. Romans 5.10 declares that the way we are reconciled to God, how are we reconciled to God, is by the death of his Son. As Jesus, Son of God, hangs there dying on the cross, there is even a recognition of his sonship by a Gentile, by a Gentile centurion who cries out, truly this man was the Son of God. Now, when Paul, in our sermon text, quotes Psalm 2 in connection with the resurrection of Jesus, when Paul says here, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul is not saying here, this is very important. He's not saying that Jesus became the Son of God at the resurrection. So it's not that somehow at the resurrection God adopted Jesus as his Son. No. As we've just seen by looking at those earlier texts in the Gospels, Jesus was already the Son of God prior to his resurrection. But at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what God was doing was this. He was declaring in power that Jesus was indeed his son. That Jesus was the son who had been addressed in Psalm 2-7. That Jesus was the King of kings, Lord of lords, the exalted one, the ultimate representative of the people of God. Going back to the text that Charles preached three weeks ago, it says in Romans 1.4, listen carefully to the language, it says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Notice there in the second line, in power. Jesus was already Son of God prior to the resurrection, but by his resurrection, God declared him Son of God 
in power. In the very helpful words of Michael Barrett, quote, the resurrection, what was the resurrection? It was the conclusive, irrefutable evidence of who Christ was. It vindicated and confirmed his every claim, not the least of which was that God was his father. Following his resurrection from the dead, what do we have? We have Christ's breathtaking enthronement speech. As the resurrected Son of God and King of Kings, he says in Matthew 28, 18, how much authority? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In Psalm 2, verse 8, God had promised that the ends of the earth would be the possession of his Son. Now it's happened. At the resurrection, the, res the resurrected Son declares full authority over all things, everything. And the resurrected Christ has ascended to a seated position at God's right hand, installed as the messianic king, he will come a second time to this earth in great glory and unmistakable power. Friends, it's the Son of God, Jesus, who we adore and who we celebrate this Christmas. The Son of God, representative of his people, King of Kings the crucified and resurrected and exalted and soon coming Lord. We eagerly await, especially after the year we've had, we eagerly await his second advent in this world that clearly is decaying. And in the meantime, and then I'm done, in the meantime, I want you to marvel at this. I want this to take your breath away. In the meantime, you and I, are you in the Son of God? Are you in union with Jesus Christ? If you are in union with the Son of God, if you walk in the Spirit, my friend, you are called a son of God, a daughter of God. Romans 8.14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. Galatians 3.26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. To be a son of God, to be a daughter of God, is to do what? Is to act today and throughout the week as a representative of the son of God. Act as a representative to our neighbor, whoever our neighbor is. To be a son of God, a daughter of God, is to go out this very week and do what? To model Christ to every person who crosses our path. To love our enemies. To be self-sacrificial, to be patient, to be compassionate. To be a peacemaker. But my friend, if you're a person who's out there watching this and you are not yet in the Son of God if you haven't yet surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, my word to you 
is the same as the Apostle Paul's word was at the close of his sermon in Acts 13. Let it be known to you, my friend, that through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. This very day, my friend, won't you acknowledge your bankruptcy in trying to atone before God by your own wits for your failures to keep his law? Abandon that. Turn instead to Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to atone for your sin. Receive him by faith. Come under the shelter of his blood. Trust his work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the eternal life that only the Son of God can give. Let's pray together. Son of God, you are holy, you are mighty, you are faithful, you are good, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, we celebrate you during this Christmas season. We love you and adore you. We praise you for the sacrifice on the cross by which we can be forgiven of our sin. We thank you for your shed blood. We thank you that the tomb is empty, that the stone is rolled away, that you, you were raised from the dead by the Father and that you, Lord, now sit at the right hand of the Father soon to come again for your children to gather us home for eternity. What an amazing God you are and what an amazing plan that you have laid out and executed so flawlessly. We thank you, Lord, and during this time, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come sweetly and nudge us into remembrance of your Son, exalted and holy and great. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the Lord's benediction for you. Now may the keeper of Israel keep you. May God our Father keep you from stumbling. May the Son of God keep you near the cross. May the Spirit of God keep you from idols. Amen. Have a blessed week.